Thank you, Chris, and uh, thank you, Christendom College, for inviting me um, <clears throat> to address a subject that uh, I love talking about and I love remembering. Um, I would like all of you here in the audience to know that of these people in the front row here, I babysat for two of them. <laughs> um, and I've divided my comments, as, as, as uh, Professor Shannon has indicated, um, I'm supposed to focus on Brent the person, and uh, Dan McCarthy will talk about the ideas in triumph. Um, and when I think about Brent, I've kind of divided his life mentally in my own mind into stages. And the first stage, I've captioned Nebraska. Because one of the things you need to know about Brent Bozell was uh, that he was an American Midwesterner through and through. Um, <clears throat> he was a corn husker. Uh, and like so many Americans, um, there is in Brent's life a recurring and winding theme that has to do with fathers and sons. And Brent was, uh, as I learned in bits and pieces over the years, very devoted to and very much influenced by his own father, who was Leo B. Bozell I, who was the founder of, uh, the co-founder of Bozell Worldwide, a very large and successful advertising agency, which uh, he, and he personally, Brent's father, um, co-founded with Father Flanagan, the well-known Boys Town operation in Nebraska, which, even to this day, um, is helping and taking care of and nurturing boys who otherwise would have not have no home. Uh, that project, Boys Town, was as much Leo Bozell's doing, uh, <coughs> excuse me, as Father Flanagan's. Uh, Brent told me once that his father had made the decision <coughs> to convert to Catholicism and hesitated and hesitated partly because he thought that it would really be a, a matter of some controversy within his own family, which was Midwestern Protestant to the core. And I think that by the time Leo <coughs> Bozell I died, he had not formally converted, but uh, in his heart and his mind he was already Catholic. And Brent took the step a year later uh, in part under his father's influence and in part because of the uh, <coughs> because of his training at Creighton Prep, a Jesuit uh, prep school in Omaha. And for some of the younger people in the audience, I may need to point out that the word Jesuit has very different connotations today than it had then. <coughs> um, and it was in it was in Creighton at Creighton Prep that Brent's uh, reputation as an orator began. He was a stalwart of Creighton Prep's debate team, and in uh, 1944, he won the national title as the American Legion Oratorical Contest champion nationally for 1944. Um, in his prep school years, I concluded that Brent's political thought was dominated by two fundamental attitudes. Uh, Anti-communism was one, 
and the other was plain old Midwestern idealism. Uh, it, may, it may strike you as ironic or paradoxical that when he left Omaha and went to Yale, uh, Brent Bozell was a world federalist. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, turning now to, well, I won't turn just yet, but uh, this Midwestern idealism covered both world federalism and anti-communism, one having sort of a left leftist tinge, the other sort of a conservative tinge, in a way that today we would find extraordinary. But in Brent, they were two, two columns holding up the idealism of the Midwesterner that was his basic character. <clears throat> and here we see um, the early development of his, anti his Brent's own anti-communism, which was a key theme of his life. And again, for those maybe who were born since the fall of the Berlin Wall, it may be necessary to point out what a, what a central issue the uh, issue of communism was for Catholics in the in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, <clears throat> and I, 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 this may be an ironic way to, to drive home this point, but I, I later had a colleague in business long after Triumph who had grown up in Joplin, Missouri, Missouri being not that far from Nebraska, and who told me that when he was in a public high school in Joplin, he once attended a, a school-sponsored program that was uh, uh, under the title, which is the more dangerous threat to America, <clears throat> communism or Catholicism? I don't know how it came out. So now we are at the point where the Nebraska boy goes to Yale, and um, the basic facts of Brent's life uh, are told, as, as uh, Professor Shannon has indicated, in this relatively new book entitled Living on Fire, The Life of L. Brent Bozell by Dan Kelly. What a title, Living on Fire. It's perfect, I think, for the Brent that I knew. So here we have him at Yale, uh, and this part of the story I think is fairly well known. He met and I think ended up rooming with William F. Buckley Jr., who became his closest friend and uh, led to his marrying Buckley's sister, Patricia, and uh, to Brent's and Bill Buckley's collaboration on the book McCarthy and His Enemies. <clears throat> and then to uh, Brent's involvement with the founders of National Review, principally Bill Buckley, but also including people like James Burnham and Russell Kirk and Moore Kendall, and, um, the, I guess you could say the, uh, the head table of the American conservative movement that was beginning to become coherent in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, The, uh, to turn again for a moment to the subject of anti-communism, uh, I refer to the fall of the Berlin Wall, which today we think of as the end of the Cold War, and I suppose it, it was symbolically that. Um, <clears throat> but ex-communists 
who I think many of whom contributed to the worldwide opposition to communism, which resulted in the fall of the Berlin Wall, were strongly represented at National Review. Frank Meyer, particularly, uh, coined the term fusionism and elaborated it as a, uh, a, an intellectual structure, if you will, under which all of the differing strands that made up the rope of American uh, conservatism could be united uh, because they were all anti-communist. So under the fusionist <coughs> um, alliance, uh, you had uh, Russell Kirkian and Burkean conservatives, traditionalist conservatives, Taft conservatives, Southern agrarians, uh, remnants of the America First movement, right-leaning libertarians, uh, James Burnham-style managerial-slash-great-power conservatives, who I think of, although Dan McCarthy's a better authority on this subject than I am, whom I think of as the first neoconservatives. Um, all of these very different strands of conservatism managed to work together and work collaboratively for 15 years or so because of the uniting anti-communism that they all shared. So as difficult as it may have been to find uh, philosophical coherence in Meyer's fusionism, it was in fact successful. The threat of communism, in internal and external, succeeded in uniting the disparate strands of the conservative movement well into the 60s. And we get into the 60s, we begin to see um, Brent's uh, work for and with Barry Goldwater. Um, the conscience of a conservative, Barry Goldwater's political manifesto, was written by Brent Bozell published in 1960 and it's been reprinted countless times since then. At one time it was known as the all-time sales leader among political books of its type, and it still may be for all I know. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Conscience of a Conservative, it's almost impossible to overestimate how influential it was in the explosive growth of conservatism as a self-conscious political movement. <coughs> It was the manual of young conservatives. <clears throat> and the conservatives who were influenced by it ended up uh, backing the Goldwater candidacy in 1964. And uh, although Goldwater was trounced in the presidential campaign, that did not uh, <coughs> break the conservatives' hold on the Republican Party. And uh, that hold culminated in Ronald Reagan's election as president in 1980. Uh, I once asked Brent if Barry Goldwater had ever, had actually written any part of Conscience of a Conservative, and his reply was that he wasn't certain Barry had even read any part of Conscience <laughs> So this is the second phase of Brent's life, the conservative. And now he's moving into the phase that I've got mentally tagged as the politician. 
Because early in the early 1960s, Brent became National Review's politician. I'm not sure this division of labor was ever formally articulated as a plan, but in fact, the inner core of National Review decided that Brent would be the man to carry the flag for the conservative movement in electoral politics. Bill Russia said at the time, again, in the early 60s, <clears throat> quote, he was the political golden boy of the conservative movement, unquote. Uh, he was going to be the conservatives, Kennedy. And the first step was going to be, I'm sorry, I'm skipping a, a very important point here. 1962, there was a much publicized uh, rally that drew 18,500 mostly young conservatives to Madison Square Garden in New York City. And um, the roster of uh, speakers included almost all the luminaries of the conservative movement at that, at that time, including Barry Goldwater. But the undisputed star of the evening was Brent Bozell. Uh, in a <clears throat> fire-breathing speech, uh, he issued a rhetorical order to the American military commanders in Berlin, tear down that wall. The line uh, not only brought down the house, but it was doubtless the seed which flowered 25 years later when President Ronald Reagan famously came to Berlin and exhorted Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall. And before very long, it was down. It's not a perfect comparison, but the effect of this speech at the Garden and the conservative movement's uh, galvanized uh, <clears throat> response to it was at least as significant as Barack Obama's keynote address to the National Democratic Convention in 2004. If you remember, uh, well, I, I, there's, a cap, there's a YouTube video of the speech, and in the caption for the video, uh, we read, by the time Barack Obama had finished speaking, Democrats across the country knew that they had seen the future of their party. Well, that's a somewhat self-interested and perhaps exaggerated statement, but there's some truth to it. But it's at least equally true that after the Madison Square Garden speech, many in the conservative movement were thinking of Brent Bozell as their hope for the future of the Republican Party. And the first step was going to be <coughs> a congressional race in 1964. Uh, Brent challenged Mac Mathias, who was a stalwart of the liberal Republican wing, a faction which was considerably more significant in, the, in, in those days than it has been since Ronald Reagan won the, Reagan won the presidency in 1980. Uh, it was during that campaign that I met Brent. I was uh, a student at the Catholic University of America, of America School of Law, and I had been reading Brent Bozell in National Review for years, and. Uh, uh, I was a great admirer of him, and I went out to his campaign office in Bethesda and volunteered in the campaign. And I ended up uh, mostly driving Brent around. Uh, the, the, the congressional district ran from Montgomery County all the way up to uh, Hagerstown in Cumberland, Maryland. So big territory, a lot of stops, a lot of driving. And I remember 
I remember during the campaign once driving Brent around uh, factories in Montgomery County that would have shifts changing at 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. and so on. And the idea was to be there when the shift changed and try to uh, make some political hay with these workers coming on shift or off shift. And uh, we were, I was driving, I, I can't remember whether it was a station wagon or some kind of a van, but it had a loudspeaker affixed to the roof. And the idea was that as we drove all, <coughs> all over Montgomery County, the message of the Bozell campaign was coming out of the loudspeaker. And uh, the message that particular day was, solve the race problem without violence. Um, so Brent was saying that over and over again through the microphone he had in the truck in the station wagon. And we pulled into whatever factory we were supposed to be at at that time. And the shift change consisted almost entirely of African-American workers coming in and African-American workers going out. And before I knew it, I heard Brent change his pitch over the microphone, over the loudspeaker to, Freedom now! <laughs> I looked over and I was grateful to see that his hand was off the button so it was being heard outside the current truck. Well, not surprisingly, Brent lost that election. And I, I, I'm convinced that he also lost any ambition he might ever have had uh, to allow uh, himself to become the conservatives Kennedy. He spent the following summer after that, uh, I think May 1964 primary, completing a book entitled The Warren Revolution, Reflections on the Consensus, Consensus Society. And although the title's a mouthful, um, any one of you who may be interested in American <coughs> constitutional law or jurisprudence, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's actually still available on Amazon. I was surprised to see when I checked within the last few days. And during that same, sum same summer, uh, Brent's friend, Professor Frederick D. Wilhelmsen, or Fritz Wilhelmsen, spent uh, the summer uh, living in an apartment that Brent had in Bethesda for uh, his office to do his writing, and hired me to work in that office on editing and researching for the book on the Warren Revolution, which was um, great fun. But it was during that summer when Brent and Fritz had the opportunity to see each other every day for a few months that they began to formulate the plan for a conservative Catholic magazine, which eventually became Triumph, first issue published in 1966. So now we move to the phase that I mentally tag the magazine. And it's fall 1964. And Brent has formed the Committee for a Conservative Catholic Magazine, which Chris has referred to, the objective of which was to raise the funds necessary to launch what eventually became Triumph. And I remember a fundraising letter that Brent wrote at that time which referenced a construction project then underway along the newly opened Interstate 66. Um, at that time, 
66 went from the belt, Capitol Beltway 495 to Gainesville, Virginia, and the rest of it was built long afterwards. And the construction project that Brent wrote about in his fundraising letter was a rest stop, a place for drivers to pull over and take care of their uh, biological needs. And the cost of the project was publicly posted. Uh, I don't remember the number, but the point of Brent's fundraising letter was that for one-tenth the cost of this roadside latrine, this new Catholic magazine could be launched. Now they say that uh, comparisons are odious, and in this case odious seems an especially apt term, but the comparison was effective. Uh, barely enough, as Chris mentioned, of the money needed came in, and uh, the magazine launched in September 1966. Now just before that, like six or nine months before that, we had put together a prototype issue, thinking then that the magazine was going to be called Future, which we later were forced to give up because the Junior Chamber of Commerce had a publication entitled Future. But the statement of purpose published in this uh, prototype <clears throat> titled Why Another Magazine uh, has a content and a tone that I think are pretty good harbingers of Triumph's own tone for its 11 or 12 year run. It said in part, we acknowledge ourselves to be Roman Catholic laymen who revere the majestic tradition of the Christian church and of the Christian order, who note the present agony of the church and the disintegration of the order, who regard the rescue of both as a joyful challenge and in the public sphere the only intelligible ambition of Christians. Far from elaborating quasi-theological justifications for the permanent slavery of the suffering church, we shall be urging policies looking toward its liberation. <coughs> then there comes <coughs> what in the hindsight of today we can see was an absolutely prescient observation. We shall be heard, for instance, on the martyrdom of the faith in the Sudan and on the sweep of the crescent through the north of Africa, which since World War II has yielded a harvest of millions of converts to Islam. No one else in 1966 was noticing and treating this as a political issue. <coughs> Almost nobody. I think this was only one of hundreds of examples of Triumph's prescience, Triumph's remarkable uh, track record of fingering what was going to be important down the road, five years, ten years. Uh, and if you were a reader of Triumph, you know this. If not, become one. Uh, the statement of purpose concluded, we hope to satisfy a grave journalistic need, but the editors of this, not, of this magazine have not joined their fortunes in friendship or pledged their swords <coughs> in battle merely for that purpose. Our goal is the resurrection of Christian civilization, the triumph of God's church, the future, Christ himself. My friends, in those few paragraphs, you're hearing the voice of Brent Bozell in his prime. Uh, 
his energy, his confidence, and the courage of his goal setting. We regard the rescue of both the Christian church and the Christian order as a joyful challenge. <clears throat> the only intelligible ambition of Christians. Our goal is the resurrection of Christian civilization, the triumph of God's church, the future of Christ himself. Now, where on the Christian landscape today do we hear even an approximation of such a voice of leadership? It was this voice, which was the lead singer for Triumph throughout the roughly 11 years of existence. Uh, it would take a lot longer than the few minutes available today, and I'm probably using too many already, to touch even the highest peaks of the magazine's analyses, commentaries, and exhortations. But thankfully, the volume, The Best of Triumph, is available from Christendom Press. Uh, and that book, uh, the original concept for which I believe was formulated by Connie Marsha, Bill Marshner's wife, who I think is going to be here later. And it includes the full text of maybe 200 articles, reviews, and other items from Triumph, and an, a thoughtful and insightful foreword by Christendom College's founder, Dr. Warren Carroll. I also contributed an introduction, which tells Brent's in the magazine's history in much greater detail than we can uh, spend time on tonight. In any case, I hope this gathering will lead to a new surge in sales for the best of Triumph. And here it seems to me I should note uh, as Professor Shannon already has, that according to Warren Carroll, quote, Christendom College was gestated in the womb of Triumph Magazine and the Society for the Christian Commonwealth, Brent Bozell's creations. In a very fundamental sense, Christendom College was a Triumph enterprise and always will be, as long as any of this present generation of college leaders and supporters shall live, I am confident they will always acknowledge our debt to, to Brent Bozell. And now I move into uh, the final phase of Brent's life, which I've labeled mercy. And I've given, uh, I've given it that tag because it was into the heart of mercy that Brent fell in the years after Triumph's demise. And I say fell in the sense that I don't believe at first that he sought mercy, but by and by he came to see that he could not live without it. I want to quote somewhat extensively from the eulogy that Brent's son, Brent III, young Brent, as I still think of him, against all evidence, uh, the eulogy that young Brent delivered on the day of his father's funeral. Uh, Brent said, to each of us, our Lord gives a cross to bear. And the one he selected for Pop was particularly harsh. Pop's behavior became erratic, nonsensical, and when finally he was hospitalized came the shattering diagnosis, manic depression. Over the next 25 years, the attack would come, and with each bout, yet another blow yet another public humiliation. Manic depression by itself is enough to break the spirit of any man, but Pop was no ordinary man, and God's test would have to be far greater than that. He loved his old crow. That would turn into alcoholism. 
He loved a good meal, a stomach disorder, and the resultant surgery would give him intestinal problems for the rest of his life. He had the stamina of a lion. A heart condition would put an end to that. And then there was his beloved uh, retreat in the Virginia countryside and the car to get him there. But a combination of peripheral neuropathy, sleep apnea, osteoporosis, degenerative disc disease, asthma, Alzheimer's, you name it, he had it. Stripped him of the ability to enjoy his final material desire. One by one they came, and when it seemed as if no part of his body had been left untouched by illness, yet a new one was diagnosed. How, we wondered, could he stand so much, and why, we marveled. <clears throat> Did he accept this torture with such nobility, with never a word of complaint? I want to end here with another fairly long quotation, which I think includes the right answer to young Brent's questions. It's from letters of Brent's friend and fellow secular Carmelite, Ed Miles. Uh, Ed wrote, Brent was a Carmelite long before his formal admittance into Carmel, which he announced while at Lisieux in April 1992. One of the characteristics of Carmelite spirituality involved offering oneself as a victim of love, i.e. the offering of one's own suffering as a gift to Christ. Pope John Paul II, himself a Carmelite of the Third Order, has made it clear that he offered himself as a victim of love. He made the following statement in the Liturgia Romano, which is now Pope John Paul II speaking. I have to lead Christ's church into this third millennium by prayer, by various programs, but I saw that this is not enough. She must be led by suffering. I have to meet the powerful of this world, and I must speak. With what arguments? I am left with the subject of suffering. And Ed Miles concludes, I do not know the exact year in which Brent prayed for suffering. I only know that he did, and that the prayer was answered. <clears throat> he prayed for suffering, and his prayer was answered. There's another book initially pub originally published by Trinity Press and reissued in 2001 by Christendom Press that I can urge upon you if you are moved to learn more about Brent and especially about the years after Triumph. It is entitled Mustard Seeds and subtitled A Conservative Becomes a Catholic. Think about that subtitle. Uh, in one of the essays <clears throat> in Mustard Seeds, Missionaries of Mercy, Brent wrote about what I take to have been his, transi his transition from years of falling into mercy to finally reaching out to embrace mercy. He wrote, Brent wrote, take the case of giving mercy directly to Christ. Brent wrote, this, is, this you do when you offer a suffering of yours to Christ in order to lighten his load including a suffering occasioned by a self-denial. What you should do then is place your suffering at Christ's side, not so much because you hope this will reduce your suffering as because you consciously, deliberately wish to reduce Christ's suffering as much as you can. 
That in the end was Brent. And what an end it was. Thank you. I hesitate to uh, follow such beautiful remarks, and uh, I think one of the most marvelous tributes to L. Brent Bozell, Jr. is the fact that he inspires such beautiful words, uh, such loyalty among all those who knew him. And that comes through certainly in the books that Michael Lawrence has recommended, uh, especially Mustard Seeds, his uh, 1986 collection of essays. And uh, the book that uh, you have today, Living on Fire, The Life of L. Brent Bozell, Jr. by Daniel Kelly, uh, it too, uh, it, it's more than a book. It really is a, a prayer and a mercy in itself. It is something that um, it will deeply move you. It is a, a life-changing book. Uh, and it's about more than just Brent Bozell's ideas, which will be the topic of my discussion today. Uh, it's about the life of the man, and it really comes through uh, the heart and the spirit uh, of Brent Bozell, Jr., and also uh, the heart and the spirit that moved Brent Bozell, Jr., so I want to thank very much Christendom College for hosting this event, uh, Christopher Shannon for organizing it, uh, the Bozell family, and also ISI Books for publishing uh, Living on Fire by Daniel Kelly. My remarks are going to discuss Albert Bozell Jr.'s place uh, among conservative thinkers, among Catholic conservative thinkers in particular, uh, both looking at some of the prescience that uh, Michael Lawrence has discussed and also at the legacy and uh, the after effects of Bozell's thought, um, the ripples and echoes that can still be felt and heard today. Elbert Bozell truly was a central figure in the conservative movement to an extent that um, it, it's very difficult to appreciate today. Uh, as Michael Lawrence had mentioned, The Conscience of a Conservative, a book that Brent Bozell wrote uh, in 1960, it is uh, as important to today's conservatism, to conservatism as it has been uh, over the last 60 years, as uh, the, the uh, Communist Manifesto was to Marxism. It really was the definitive mission statement of a movement, and it was a book that truly changed and transformed uh, a great many lives. Uh, I know that Patrick Buchanan, for example, has alluded to uh, the great effect that it had on him. Brent Bozell was truly ahead of his time in so many respects, in so many aspects of his thought. He was uh, really one of the first conservative thinkers to look at the Supreme Court's usurpation of the role of the political branches of government. The 1966 book, The War and Revolution, is the definitive statement of that. Brent Bozell was also far ahead of everyone else in terms of his appreciation and his explanation of social conservatism. Uh, and today, it's, it's, Brent Bozell's view on social conservatism has become such a bedrock for the movement, a movement which ultimately, I think, perhaps misunderstands Bozell's view. But nonetheless, uh, the idea of social conservatism has become a foundation stone today, which it really was not in the 1960s when Brent Bozell was first writing about these topics, about the life issues, about contraception, and about abortion. It's very hard to remember now, but in fact, in the 1960s, conservatives tended to be rather indifferent to these issues, if not, in fact, on the other side. Uh, famously, uh, Goldwater himself was someone who tended to be a supporter of abortion rights. Uh, Ronald Reagan, as governor of California, signed a bill uh, liberalizing the abortion laws of his state. And even uh, Bill Buckley, uh, Brent Bozell's brother-in-law and a Catholic, 
was uh, someone who was often unclear on these issues. Um, he tended to criticize the church's uh, ban on contraception, and he tended to, um, even on abortion, Buckley could be rather evasive and tended to think that this was an issue that uh, Catholics could personally oppose, but that they, as political actors, must be careful not to impose upon uh, their fellow citizens. Brent Bozell clearly saw that all of these things were uh, inconsistent with the demands of faith, and that in fact there was necessarily a political voice that had to be expressed here on these life issues. So he was ahead of the curve not only on court usurpation and on social conservatism, but also in the later uh, years of his life, in, the, in his later works, in the late 1960s and, and going forward, he was very much prescient about the flaws and the failures of movement conservatism. And the subtitle of Mustard Seeds, A Conservative Becomes a Catholic, really tells the story. Uh, Triumph itself, the magazine, tells the story as well. That simply having a political movement and simply having a program of electing Republican officials is certainly not going to generate the kind of spiritual renaissance uh, that was necessary. And Brent Bozell was, became very critical, in fact, of a great many aspects of America that are praised by the conservative movement. He was critical of consumer capitalism. He was critical of some of the excesses of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, this was a tremendous change. At one point, because he recognized that a failure of nerve and a lack of resolve was leading the U.S. into a dangerous position during the Cold War, uh, Brent Bozell had actually favored a preemptive war against the Soviet Union, and he favored uh, the use of expansive nuclear testing to develop weapons that would win that war. But he changed his mind on this, and he came to see that the use of weapons of mass destruction against civilians, even in circumstances such as those of World War II, were inconsistent with the teachings of Catholic just war theory and had to be opposed by any sincere man of the faith. So in all these regards, Brent Bozell was not only ahead of his time in shaping the conservative movement, he was also ahead of his time in finding some of the failures and inconsistencies of that movement and in offering a powerful critique in the pages of Triumph. With that preamble, I'm now going to talk about a few particular essays by Brent Bozell which have had a tremendous uh, shaping effect both on the conservative movement and on thinkers uh, far and wide. In particular, I want to mention a essay call, an essay called uh, Freedom or Virtue, which was published in National Review in 1962. This essay was a response to Frank Meyer, and as uh, Michael Lawrence had discussed, Frank Meyer was sort of the leading ideologue of movement conservatism in the uh, 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, Meyer was uh, a former communist. He ended his life as a man of faith. He converted to Catholicism uh, on his deathbed. But in between, he was uh, torn, and I think Brent Bozell was very um, perceptive in recognizing that in Meyer there was a sense of um, existentialism, that he was struggling with who he was and what his place was, what man's place was, in fact, uh, within uh, metaphysical reality. So uh, Frank Meyer was uh, someone who was committed to a particular political formula that would bring together what he saw as a quest for virtue, a quest for metaphysical clarity, uh, without actually having an answer, without actually solving the problems of metaphysics and of the spirit. That was the traditionalist strain within American conservatism, as Frank Meyer understood it. There was also a libertarian or anti-statist strain to American conservatism, and that was where Frank Meyer tended to put his practical emphasis that in fact uh, conservatives, according to Meyer, should oppose almost all sorts of federal activity, um, and also um, really a lot of laws, a lot of regulations, even at the local level. Uh, Frank Meyer was uh, very much uh, a libertarian in terms of his view of politics and of government, 
even though I think um, people perhaps uh, in subsequent years have forgotten the extent to which Meyer really was quite sincere in his search for a traditionalism that he could espouse. Uh, Meyer was very critical of the counterculture of the 1960s and 1970s. He was very critical of the drug culture in particular and of hippies. Um, he was a true believer in the idea of Western civilization. And I think that idea of Western civilization helped to lead him toward the faith uh, near the end of his life. But in any case, Frank Meyer's version of fusionism was a little bit too simplistic uh, in its treatment of virtue, as Brent Bozell recognized. And so in 1962, Brent Bozell, who was a, a fellow senior editor of National Review with Frank Meyer, uh, wrote an extensive objection to some of Meyer's views about uh, the combination of libertarianism and traditionalism. Meyer, in uh, January of 1962, had written an essay called The Twisted Tree of Liberty, which ironically enough was actually aimed primarily at criticizing uh, libertarians who had become too defeatist in the face of communism or who uh, were not sufficiently appreciative of traditionalism. But even though that was the point at which uh, Frank Meyer started in The Twisted Tree of Liberty, in January of 1962, he eventually turned the essay uh, toward the direction of criticizing traditionalists and saying that uh, too many traditionalists were in favor of moral restrictions and other kinds of laws and regulations at the local level and at even to, to, a, to a lesser extent at the federal level. Bozell uh, retorted with uh, Freedom or Virtue in 1962, which is one of the seminal essays clarifying the differences between traditionalist conservatism and libertarianism and not accepting the Meyer position that there is an easy fusion between these two branches uh, of the American right. Bozell made a couple of points, and I'm only going to gloss over them very quickly. Um, it's one other reason why you should purchase uh, mustard seeds, is that this essay, Freedom or Virtue, is included in it, and it really is, again, very seminal in terms of clarifying the differences between these strains within the American right. Bozell, first of all, pointed out that one of Frank Meyer's prime contentions was simply metaphysically and psychologically incorrect. Meyer believed that if you were forced to do something, it therefore um, obviated your role as a moral agent. It meant that you, didn't, um, you weren't acting morally, you were simply acting under compulsion. Bozell pointed out that this is not strictly true, that in fact, you do have free will even if you have a gun pointed at your head. You can still choose to do the right thing or the wrong thing, and you're not simply uh, an automaton who has to accede to force majeure. Bozell, I think, uh, is indisputably correct in uh, challenging Meyer on that point and in pointing out that, in fact, we do have uh, the, the freedom that matters most, the freedom of conscience, the freedom to act morally, even in the most constrained circumstances, even facing uh, the most uh, oppressive kind of adversity from government or from the outside. Beyond that, uh, Bozell also argued that most people do not uh, have this his heroic kind of um, attachment to metaphysical truth that Meyer really seemed to have. Meyer, um, there's almost, as I said, an existentialist, almost a Nietzschean element in Meyer, where he's constantly trying to make, create, discover uh, what metaphysical truth is. He believes he doesn't have it yet, and that you can't learn it from the outside, almost. It's something you have to work through on a personal level. Bozell pointed out that, in fact, you know, throughout uh, history, throughout the, uh, the West especially, People have always had help. They've always had the guidance of the church and also the guidance uh, up to a point of the state. And that in fact, it is the role of public institutions to help guide people to virtue. It's not a path you have to discover uh, purely unaided uh, as a kind of lone individual out in the cosmos trying to discover virtue for yourself. So on these two points, Bozell challenged Meyer 
And he said that, in fact, uh, you know, traditionalist conservatism has to remain apart from the metaphysical presuppositions of libertarianism on these points, and in, up to a point as well, also has to differ in terms of practical uh, applications, that, in fact, the traditionalist may see a greater uh, role for the state in terms of moral policing than the libertarian does. So while these uh, beliefs have been felt uh, and to a limited extent articulated uh, by others before Brent Bozell, they really had not been put in such sharp relief until Freedom or Virtue in 1962. But there's another Bozell essay which I think deserves to be just as famous as Freedom or Virtue and which also offers clarification even if it offers uh, a less of a firm grounding on which to stand uh, in latter-day politics. And that is a uh, 19... 68 essay published in Triumph called The Death of the Constitution. And here Brent Bozell answered the question, where would the second volume of the Warren Revolution come from? It was originally projected by Bozell that he would write two books on the American judiciary and the usurpations of the Supreme Court. The Warren Revolution was the first volume, but the second volume was not going to be forthcoming. Why? Why had Bozell abandoned uh, the second book on the Constitution and the Supreme Court? Well, he answered in this 1968 essay, The Death of the Constitution, and he pointed to two things, two flaws. First, the American people themselves did not seem to want to recover the Constitution as the founders had envisioned it. And if that was the case, then simply talking about the Constitution was never going to be enough to bring about a restoration. The problem lay more deep than simply in the Supreme Court. It lay deeper than in the political class as a whole. It lay, in fact, in the heart of the country and in the country's own soul and spirit. The second point which he brought up was perhaps even more disturbing for his former conservative friends and many of his uh, continuing conservative friends as well, but was certainly very disturbing for, the move, for movement conservatism as a political position. And that was, Bozell criticized the Constitution itself. He said the Constitution failed to acknowledge God. It failed to acknowledge a higher metaphysics than simply the will of the, of the public. And based on that, it was absolutely predictable, even in the uh, you know, founding hours of the Constitution, that things would go awry and it would be very difficult to maintain virtue in a country that did not have a commitment to a metaphysical truth. Um, it's worth pointing out, by the way, that uh, the U.S. Constitution really was very unusual for its time and is even unusual in our time in not having any kind of recognition of uh, a higher law, a recognition of God, a recognition uh, of a church, that in fact most states historically have had some sort of formal religious commitment in their charters. Uh, the United States, for practical reasons, did not have that commitment. And uh, one may say that, you know, some of Bozell's crit critics uh, said to him that, well, it doesn't really matter whether you have something in the document or not, because, you know, we can look at the example of other countries, and they too have drifted away uh, from their moral foundations. They too have had many of the same problems that we have had. However, if you at least have an acknowledgement within the document, you can then say that there is more than just the public will, there's more than just uh, sort of consumer demand, there's more than just democracy, uh, that there are higher virtues that have to be acknowledged and that one must at least discuss and try to persuade the public of. The absence of that within the U.S. Constitution has meant that, um, in the words of someone very different from Bozell, the Whig historian Thomas Babington Macaulay, that the U.S. Constitution is all sail and no anchor. It continues to move on and transform itself over time, and it's very hard to get back to its original founding intentions because, in fact, even at that founding period, there was this element of dynamism and this element of drift incorporated into it. Well, this essay, The Death of the Constitution, was uh, even... Uh, 
a relatively mild example of Brent Bozell's critique of the way the U.S. polity was developing and of some of the shibboleths of the conservative movement. Uh, again, he was willing to talk about just war. He was willing to talk about uh, the, uh, the defects of capitalism in a way that you would not find in the pages of other uh, supposedly conservative magazines. And in fact, Triumph, uh, as Bozell pointed out, was a radical magazine, a radical Catholic magazine. It was looking at foundations. It was not simply looking at what was politically convenient for the Republican Party. So in all of this, Bozell was tremendously bold. And the question may arise, if Bozell came to be so critical and so insightful in uh, recognizing the failures of movement conservatism as it was expressed in the 1960s, where is the Bozell perspective today? Is there any legacy? Is there any follow-on to this uh, critique and this uh, pointing towards a higher metaphysical goal for our discussions? Well, I think there is. And in fact, there are in fact several uh, permutations in conservatism and in uh, thought on the American right, which um, Oh, a tremendous debt to Brent Bozell, a tremendous debt even to the, the radical Bozell of triumph and of the death of the Constitution. Certainly, the, uh, within even movement conservatism, you see an emphasis on the Supreme Court, an emphasis on social conservatism that was not a present before Bozell started writing uh, his works in National Review and in Triumph. So on both of those levels, Bozell has influenced uh, conservatives across the spectrum. And I think you can see in the development of social conservatism and a strongly Catholic-inflected social conservatism uh, in the 1990s, <coughs> represented by a figure such as Patrick Buchanan, a certain kind of Bozellian perspective. Um, it's it's a, a sort of middle Bozell from the uh, early 1960s, where he was still very much uh, supportive of the conservative movement, even as he recognized that it had certain defects. In someone like Pat Buchanan, you have social conservatism expressed very boldly in a way that it generally had not been, uh, even by Reagan, certainly not by Goldwater, and, uh, and certainly not by leading 1990s uh, Republicans such as Bob Dole or uh, George H.W. Bush, or even for that matter, and kind of especially for that matter, Newt Gingrich. So you had a social conservatism that took form and that I think really was uh, very much in the spirit of uh, Bozell's early writings uh, in the 1990s. But you also had two other more radical branches of conservatism develop in the 1990s, which I think also owe a tremendous debt to Brent Bozell's thinking. One of these was a kind of Jeffersonianism, a Jeffersonian localist conservatism, sometimes called paleoconservatism, which said that the country as a national entity might be very difficult or impossible to reform, but reform was possible at the local level, and much more of a moral, uh, a healthy morality could still be found in America's small towns and localities that could be cultivated, insulated against the federal leviathan and its corrupting touch, and from that sort of middle American base, there could come a regeneration of the public morality. That was certainly what many thinkers in the 1990s uh, believed, and into the, the 21st century as well. You also had, perhaps ironically, a branch of libertarianism that owes a debt to L. Brent Bozell. In the 1960s, most of the libertarians were uh, men of very faint religious commitments or no religious commitments at all. But by the 1990s, you actually found a number of libertarians who recognized, who first of all had very deep commitments to Catholicism themselves. Uh, someone like my friend, the historian Tom Woods, is a very good example of this. You had a number of uh, Catholics who were very sincere and committed in their faith, who also became very critical of the American state, as it was in the, uh, at the end of the 20th century, who could see that American government was not, in fact, 
uh, at all related to the kind of government that uh, L. Brent Bozell had described as being able to lead men to virtue, that in fact government at almost all levels within uh, the United States was leading people away from virtue. And if that is the case, then having a very critical perspective on all government power, even the power that seems to be, uh, that has a sort of counterfeit virtue to it, is a necessary position for uh, people who are committed to uh, spiritual truth. So you had a certain kind of Catholic libertarianism actually develop, uh, or a paleo-libertarianism, which I think also owes a tremendous debt to L. Brent Bozell's thinking. And that's not to say, of course, that Bozell himself would have necessarily agreed with any of these sort of later developments on the right, but I do think they all reflect elements of what Bozell had been right about in the 1960s that nobody else at all had been discussing at that time. Well, as we get into the 21st century, all of these positions are besieged, and clearly there are tremendous dangers facing uh, every sort of conservative, every, every, um, every Catholic, every man and woman of faith in this country. And Bozell, again, was correct on so many of the major threats facing us. Certainly the courts, who is the Warren Revolution, remains a classic in that regard, and if anything, things have gone uh, much farther in a dangerous direction than he might have uh, even feared. Uh, social conservatism, again, he was very much uh, correct and prescient in that. And in so many of his essays in Triumph, he was also uh, addressing themes that remain uh, to be answered by conservatives and by Catholics uh, involved in politics in the 21st century. So, for example, war. As uh, Michael Lawrence correctly pointed out, Bozell was one of the few people to recognize at the time that the growth of Islam was a major spiritual and strategic danger to the United States. And this was something that uh, comes through in several of his essays. He has uh, one of the late essays in Mustard Seeds is about a Catholic theory of realpolitik. And uh, he looks at the uh, spiritual battle that's going on between Catholic lands in Europe and in Latin America and elsewhere. And on the other hand, the more post-religious uh, West that was represented by the United States and by much of Western Europe. These elements then facing also the communists and facing also uh, the Islamic world. So he was prescient in seeing a divide then that was much more sophisticated than the usual East versus West uh, Cold War perspective. Bozell looked at in fine-grained uh, detail the requirements of just war theory. Again, he was very critical, became extremely uh, and correctly critical of the use of nuclear weapons against civilian populations. In economics, too, I mean, we have lived through, and in fact, we probably still are living through, a great recession in a time of tremendous uh, capitalistic um, defeat and uh, complication. Bozell recognized that uh, an economy without any kind of spiritual anchor was going to drift and was going to get itself into trouble in worldly terms, let alone in spiritual terms and metaphysical ones. And fundamentally, of course, Bozell was addressing in his later works the role of, of faith and a person of faith in an adversarial political culture overall. That in fact, what does it mean to be a faithful Catholic and a faithful American? This is something that too many people of all sides have taken for granted, when in fact it is a problem and a question that remains difficult to answer. So in all of these respects, I think L. Brent Bozell remains ahead of his time. He was in the 1960s, and he still is in the year 2014. I can do no more than recommend that you read Mustard Seeds and uh, The War and Revolution, and really get a sense of Bozell as a writer and thinker, as well, of course, as a person, from testimonials such as Michael Lawrence's and from this book, Living on Fire. So thank you. Thank you.